going to start a little bit different this morning. I'm going to start, I want to read you something. I usually don't do that, but boy, when it's good, you just kind of have to do it. Listen to this. If, you, if you're a Christian parent, what do you want for your kids? If you're a Christian child, what do you want for your family? Probably you want a number of attributes to increasingly mark your family. Love, joy, holiness, unity, and reverence before the Lord. You can probably think of a number of items, but let's try to sum up all of the qualities with one not very exciting word. Healthy. You want a healthy family. A family that works and lives and loves together as God designed the family to do. And so it is for our churches. I propose that Christians, whether pastors or church members, should aspire to have healthy churches. Maybe there's a better word to describe what the church should be than healthy. After all, we are talking about the people purchased by the blood of the eternal Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Is healthy the best that we can come up with? Yet, I like the word healthy because it communicates the idea that the body is living and growing as it should. It may have its share of problems. It's not been perfected yet, but it's on the way. It's doing what it should do because God's word is guiding it. A healthy church is not a church that's perfect and without sin. It has not figured everything out. Rather, it's a church that continually strives to take God's side in the battle against ungodly desires and the deceits of the world, our flesh, and the devil. It's a church that continually seeks to conform itself to God's word. Let me give you a more precise definition, and then we'll look at Scripture. A healthy church is a congregation that increasingly reflects God's character as his character has been revealed in his word. So if a pastor were to ask me what kind of church I would encourage him and aspire him to have, and to pastor, I would say a healthy one, one that increasingly reflects God's character as it's been revealed in his word. And let me ask you, Christians, what kind of church might I encourage you to join and serve and patiently work toward? I'd encourage you towards a healthy one, one that is increasingly reflecting God's character as it has been revealed in his word. I don't want to presume that someone couldn't better articulate what I'm trying to get at. This is quite simply the best that I can presently do to explain what I believe is the central biblical goal for what we should generally aspire to in our churches, reflecting the character of God as it has been revealed in his word. What Christian doesn't want that? That's how Mark Dever begins chapter 3 in his wonderful little book, What is a Healthy Church? And I would encourage you and commend that book to you. You can pick that book up and read it in about a day. But that's how he begins his little chapter, What is a Healthy Church? And Honestly, what Christian doesn't want a healthy church? I mean, of all the things that you can think about when, when you think about the church and the church that you want to give yourself to and the church that you want to labor in and the church you want to serve, is healthy the primary attribute that you look for? I mean, at Redemption Hill, the thing that we have committed ourselves to and the thing that we continue to pursue with great vigilance and, and yet great humility is God's grace grows that in our hearts is health. There are lots of things that you can shoot for. There's lots of goals, lots of attributes, lots of missions, and lots of visions that you can be about in the process of planting and growing, pastoring and building a local church. And they're not all bad things, but I honestly believe as Scripture paints the picture, they're all byproducts of one primary thing, and that's health. 
That's a people who are continually being cultivated to reflect the character of their creator as he's revealed himself in his word. The thing that we are most vigilant about as we pray, as we serve, as we labor by God's grace to see the church in this city built, growing, fruitful, the thing that we labor for most diligently is health. Lots of other things can take our attention and lots of other things, uh, good things, can become primary things. But those things are to be born out of a foundation of health. What we should want, what we should aspire to, not only in our lives as followers of Christ, but as God's people in his church, we should aspire to be healthy, to be a healthy people. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul was encouraging his young protege, his young friend, his pastor friend, Titus, in the little letter that he wrote him that we have in our New Testaments that, that bears Titus's name, the Apostle Paul was encouraging his friend, his fellow worker in the gospel, to labor there in an island of Crete in a tough assignment in the Mediterranean Sea, to labor diligently for the health of a local church. So if you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, if you grabbed one of our, our, our Bibles that we have in the foyer, please open them up to the New Testament, and in there you'll find the book of Titus. You got to be slow when you're getting there if you don't know where it is. It's only 46 verses. Three chapters, 46 verses. The Apostle Paul was being very judicious with his ink and his parchment. Um, you know, they didn't have typewriters. They didn't have word processors. There was no delete button for Paul. He had parchment and he had a pen. He couldn't make mistakes. So he was very dense in 46 verses. But if you start in the New Testament in Matthew and make your way, as soon as you hit the letters that Paul wrote to his other protege, Timothy, you slow down you'll find Titus right there behind him. If you've hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. Open him up to the book of Titus, and as you're getting there, let me give you a little bit of background regarding this book because, again, maybe I'm just on a kick this year preaching things that we generally just don't find because I've been wanting to do it. So we did a, a whole series on Ecclesiastes because you never really preach in Ecclesiastes, but for some reason I wanted to preach Ecclesiastes. And you never really preach Titus, but for some reason, I want to preach Titus. So let me give you a, a little bit of a background to who this guy is and, and what we should know about him and, and how that will help us as we take the next handful of weeks to walk through this very densely packed letter from the Apostle Paul, encouraging not only the church in Crete, but the church here in Redemption Hill in Richmond towards health. Um, Titus is, a, is an interesting character in the New Testament. Uh, we don't get a lot of background information about him. Uh, in reading the New Testament, you'll never hear of the conversion of Titus. We won't really hear the story until we see him and as he is in heaven uh, in that great day. We won't really know how he was converted. We won't really know where he was converted. All that we know is that he was born of Gentile parents, and at some point, under the ministry probably of Paul, he came to hear the, the good news of the gospel, and, and Jesus collided with his soul, and a transformation took place in his life. Uh, so we don't get any early information about Titus, but the first thing that we learn uh, in the book of Galatians, or in the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians church, in chapter 2, verse 3, we, we hear Paul talking about how Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem. This is a very interesting trip. Uh, if you read about that trip in the book of Acts, Titus accompanied Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. They were going there to meet as pastors and apostles of the, of the message of the gospel and try to straighten some things out. They were trying to figure out just what things were most important as they took their different ministries out to the, to the world as they preached the gospel, what things were mandatory, what things were certain, and the issue at hand, and why I think Titus went with Paul on this trip, the issue that consumed the Jerusalem council on this particular visit was the compulsory circumcision of Gentiles. 
there was a whole party of Judaizers, as you'll hear them called in the, in the New Testament, who were trying to insist that when people were converted to Christianity, when Gentiles became Christians, that they were to take on the, the compulsory rights of the previous Jewish people. So if you were a Gentile and had not been circumcised as a child, when you became a Christian, you, they wanted you to take on that compulsory right of Jewish identification and circumcision. And so Paul had gone there with Barnabas, and he took his buddy Titus with him as a test case. How would you like to be Titus on that trip? Paul calls you to go with him to the council. I mean, how encouraging is that? Paul's going to take you with him and Barnabas, and you're going to go to the Jerusalem council. I mean, you're going to see Peter. You're going to see everybody. You're going to see all the apostles. You're going to see all the church leaders. How, how encouraging must Titus have been? And I don't know that Paul told him, and we'll, this is another thing we'll find out in eternity. I don't know if Paul told him that he was going because he was going to prove a point. And if the council had not voted in Paul's favor, I don't know how encouraged Titus would have been on that trip. But Scripture records by, by God's good providence that the Jerusalem council weighed in in favor of Paul and the message of God's grace. And Titus, as his great test case, was there with him. And they voted not to require compulsory circumcision of all the Gentiles um, as they became Christians. And from there, the assumption is in Scripture, we don't have the detail, that Titus continued to accompany Paul on many of his ministry journeys and many of his missionary trips, that he was one of of Paul's faithful um, companions on these trips. And and we hear a little bit more about Titus in 2 Corinthians. Titus pops back up on the scene again in the book of 2 Corinthians. And and what you get there is is you find out that Paul had been doing kind of an extended ministry visit in, in Ephesus. He had been in Ephesus doing work with the Ephesian church, and word came to him while he was there that the Corinthian church, who who Ray preached about for the last five weeks, this very confused, very passionate, um, very sinful, very human church, had once again lost faith in their pastor. That once again, the Corinthian church no longer trusted Paul's authority, no longer trusted Paul's message, uh, no longer trusted Paul's apostleship, And word got to Paul that the church that he had loved, the church that he had labored, the church that he had served in Corinth no longer appreciated him. And so to kind of begin to repair the breach, once all the efforts of reconciliation had failed, Paul grabbed his boy, Titus. And Paul sent Titus to the Corinthians with a letter in an effort to repair the breach that had grown between him and the Corinthian church. And what we learn in 2 Corinthians is that Titus did the work well that Titus was not, able, not only able to deliver the message that Paul had given him, but he was able to, to be there with the Corinthians and mitigate diplomatically and pastorally this struggle that they were having with Paul. I mean, Titus takes a message back to the Corinthians from Paul to the people who are now doubting Paul's authority, and he takes that message back, and he doesn't just deliver it and drop it off. I mean, they're going to read it, and they're going to have to process it. And Titus, his trusted companion, was there to pastor those people through that struggle. Such to the degree that we find in 2 Corinthians that Titus was able to return to Paul with the good news of the Corinthians' love and fellowship. And Paul so encouraged by Titus' report that he was able to, to repair the breach that had grown between him and the church, Paul wrote another letter that we know of as 2 Corinthians, which contains these details. He gives it to Titus and sends him back to the Corinthians. And Titus takes that letter back to the Corinthians. And in that letter were instructions, if you read 2 Corinthians, about how Paul was going to take up an offering for the struggling church in Jerusalem. And he was going to take it up through all the churches in the area. And Titus delivered that message, and 
pastored those people. And a brief read in Romans 15, when Paul talks about his desire to return to Jerusalem with the money that he had collected, you'll be able to infer that Titus did a good job raising money in the Corinthian church too. So Titus is a real interesting guy. He's a guy who, who, who commanded a great deal of the Apostle Paul's trust. He was a man that Paul would send to pastor a very difficult people through a very difficult search situation. Very diplomatic, very skillful, very deep in their understanding of the gospel and understanding of grace, having been the one who stood before the council willing, I assume, because Paul was there early on in his life, to suffer circumcision for the sake of the gospel going forward if that's what in God's providence had occurred. A deep man of experiential grace, a deep man of understanding the message of the gospel, a man trusted by the Apostle Paul deeply. After his work with the Corinthian church, it's assumed because we don't have it in the book of Acts, and and Acts, which we're going to preach through next, you'll understand when we get there, isn't a comprehensive study of all of Paul's travels. It's just an overview of what he's done. The assumption would be that after the work with the Corinthians, Titus continued to accompany Paul on his journeys, and at some point they landed in Crete, and they went to the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, and they preached the gospel, and some were saved. And what we find here as we get into the book of Titus is that Paul left his trusted companion, his trusted pastor, his friend, in Crete to now put in order, to put straight what was going on in that church. Titus was a a faithful man, one strong in the good news of the gospel, one with very sensitive pastoral abilities, very adept at being able to apply the gospel to the realities of life, one trusted by the apostle Paul And now one trusted to such a degree that as a church begins to gather and people need to be brought together and a church needs to be encouraged towards health and growth and fruitfulness in the ministry, Paul would leave his friend Titus there. This is the kind of man we're dealing with. Such to the degree, I'll give you a little personal thing, I wanted to name my son Titus. I so like this guy and what what we can kind of infer about him that I wanted to name my son Titus until Ray told me it sounded like a disease. I don't even know if you remember that. We were at a, we- a friend's wedding, and, and, and Aaron was pregnant, and it was between Jude and Titus. Jude, because he's my favorite theologian. I think anybody who was a biological brother of Jesus Christ himself and came to a faith in his own brother as the Savior of humanity and could thus sit down to encourage the church towards a message of grace and be so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that he would stop in the middle of his message and say, no, you know what, I need to actually rebuke you. And now I need to encourage you to contend for the truth of which I had to experience firsthand with my own brother. Man, he's an amazing guy. So he, he won. But we were at a wedding, and I told Ray, I said, you know, I said, between Judah and Titus, and I was kind of leaning towards Titus because this, guy, this guy's a strong guy. I mean, this is a, a man of great character, of great faith, of, that has earned the Apostle Paul's trust. And Ray said, yeah, that's a cool name. I think every time I hear it, though, I would think of an itis. Appendicitis. Appendicitis. It sounds like a disease. Little did Ray know that at that very moment, he had killed my dream of having a son named Titus. <laughs> so, Aaron thanks you, though. I mean, uh, Aaron wasn't very keen on, on Titus. So, uh, we are going to spend the next handful of weeks walking through this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to his friend Titus as he was pastoring this church in Crete, this troubled church. And he was the right man for the job. He was the perfect man for the job. Born to Gentile parents experiencing the grace of God and coming to the gospel, not required by God to to give himself to the compulsory Jewish rites of circumcision, of following the feasts and the laws, sent to a people 
who had no background in those things, but at the same time being infected, as we see, by those very Judaizers who sought to have him circumcised when he first came to faith. Titus is the perfect man in the perfect place for God's job. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to his friend, who he left there to bring this church to health, to encourage Titus in his work, and to encourage Titus to labor to build, by God's grace, a healthy church. And, he, and here's the message that we're going to see woven throughout every aspect of this letter. The way in which you chiefly establish and grow a life and a congregation that's healthy and that reflects the character of God is by establishing a life and a church that knows what it is to enjoy grace. That's the message we're going to see woven from the very first verses of Titus all the way through the end. A healthy person, a healthy Christian, and a healthy church is one that knows what it is to enjoy grace. Because as we'll see in just a few minutes, grace changes everything. Grace changes everything. And so in his passion for the gospel, in his zeal for the church, in his love for his friend Titus, Paul writes this letter to encourage him in that very work. Titus, enjoy grace. Titus, appoint leaders who are driven by grace. Titus, Help people cultivate lives that display grace. Titus, stand strong to defend grace. Church, enjoy grace. Before we jump in, let me pray for us, and then we're going to to look at this message in the very beginning. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to come together as your people, Uh, for many of us to come together to celebrate your grace that we sing about with our mouths, uh, the grace to which we sing that we are continual debtors, the grace which has rescued us, the grace which has changed us, the grace which is protecting us, and the grace which is preserving us and carrying us towards the day when we stand before you and are transformed into your image. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to come together and to celebrate that. And we ask that in the few minutes that we have now, and the time that we have as we as we surrender ourselves to your word, I ask, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you help us to be a people that learns what it is to enjoy grace. That we become a people who who deeply and increasingly learn what it is to know not only about grace, but to taste the goodness of your grace. To find comfort and strength in the depth of your grace. To find hope and assurance in the long-suffering of your grace. Lord, we ask this, that this place in our lives would be healthy, that we would be healthy Christians who would display your character in our lives as it's revealed in your word, and that we would be a people together that would form a healthy church that would display your character as it's revealed in your word. All of that, that you may be glorified, that your name may be made known, that people would not look to us and look to the church and say, what a great person and what a great place, but they would look to us and look to this place and have any experience with us and say, wow, what a great God. What deep grace. Lord, we ask this, that you would be made known. You would be made great. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, hopefully you found Titus now. A few trips around the New Testament, you should be able to catch it. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, we're going to look at this message of enjoying grace and a grace that changes everything, just as Paul even introduces himself here. Titus 1, Paul, a servant of God 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God and Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. First thing I want us to see as we look at this and we try to understand what it means to enjoy grace is I want us to understand, first off, that grace, God's grace, changes you. If grace changes everything, then the first thing that we've got to come to grips with is that grace changes you. I mean, just look at who's writing this. By his own admission, the Apostle Paul considered himself at one point in his life God's gift to his church. The Apostle Paul looked at his life, looked at his accomplishments, looked at who he was and where he came from, and in his passion and in his zeal and in his self-righteousness and in his arrogance, considered himself God's gift to his church. Look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3. It should come up there. If it is Paul talking about himself, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. And here was a man who possessed a passion and a zeal for God and his word and his law that he found himself in his zeal persecuting the church that he is now serving. I mean, here is a man in his passion and in his zeal and in his self-righteousness understood himself not only as exalted before God, but exalted above everything else and everyone else. And he spent his time and his considerable wisdom applying his passion to getting rid of these heretical Christians. This was the Apostle Paul. This was who he would consider himself and confess himself to be. And then one day, you can read in the book of Acts, and we'll go through it here in just a number of weeks, on his way to persecute more Christians. Because remember, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As for the law, I mean, as for the demands of God that God has for his people in the law, he was a zealot, a Pharisee of Pharisees, memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, knew all of the law of God inside and out, sought with everything in his life to obey the law of God to a T, including the additional laws that the teachers and the Pharisees would add to it over the centuries. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, these Christians preaching this message of grace from this Messiah who was crucified on a tree. Understand his passion. He loved God. On his way to persecute what he understood to be heretics, Christians, Paul collided with this risen Savior. Paul did not just hear the message of the gospel preached along the roadway. Paul was confronted by the risen Savior himself. A violent encounter. Paul knocked off his donkey, blinded for days. And in this collision with the risen Savior, Paul's very heart, Paul's very soul, Paul's very passion was transformed by the one he had sought to persecute and eradicate the good news of. Paul was transformed 
from the inside out by the message of God's grace and the goodness of God's grace as it was revealed in Jesus. And look at what he continues to say in Philippians. That's who he considered himself to be, but grace, remember grace changes everything. And chiefly, it starts by changing you. But Paul said, listen to verse 7 in Philippians 3, he said, whatever was to my profit, all those things, my righteousness, my zeal, my knowledge of the law, my capacity to obey, my desire to do all the right things against everybody else, my desire to exalt myself above everybody else, to be one that they all looked at and wanted to be like, whatever I had that was profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more? I consider everything a loss compared to this, to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Grace changes everything. For whose sake I have now lost all things. All things. I have lost all of those things that I once considered to be the very things that made me who I was. Not just the loss of things as he traveled, not just the loss of possessions as he was persecuted and he suffered, as he went shipwrecked and was stoned, not just the loss of health and his struggles. He's talking specifically of the loss of the things that for years convinced him that he was better than everybody else. All of the things that Paul had gathered to himself to convince him that before God, he stood right. That he had done all that he needed to do to stand before God and be counted as righteous because of who he was and what he has done. Paul is saying because of the grace of God that has come through Christ that I have now known and tasted all of those things that I once considered profit are now lost for the surpassing knowledge of Christ Jesus, my King, my Lord. I consider those things, those things that I once considered so important to me, I now consider them as rubbish, he said. That I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. That which is through faith in Christ. That which is through the grace that comes through faith in who Jesus is and what he has done. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead. Grace changes everything. Chiefly, grace starts by changing you. Paul had spent his life attempting to justify himself before God in pursuit of his own righteousness, to justify himself before other people in the pursuit of his own righteousness. He had done what so many of us find ourselves doing day in and day out, trying to do all of the right things so that we can stand before God and show him just what we have done and just how much we love him in the hope that he would then return that love towards us and we would have some measure of assurance that we're okay with him. And and some of us do better because we're by personality and wiring disciplined and we do all these right things and we're disciplined people and so we do all the right things expecting God to look at us and go, what a great person. What a great person. Let me pour my love. Let me pour my assurance and my grace out on that person. They're so disciplined and so good and so passionate to do what's right. 
Meanwhile, we do those things not only to earn that very love and assurance from God, but we do it so that others can look and we can say, you know what, really, this is what the measure of a good Christian. This is the measure of righteousness and holiness here in this place. Paul had spent his entire life seeking to justify himself before God and justify himself before other people, seeking a righteousness that came from all of those things that he now, because of the grace of God, sees and understands as utter rubbish. Grace has absolutely changed everything. Paul no longer defines himself by where he comes from and what he's accomplished and how much he knows and who he knows and what he does and all the things that he can continue to do and not do and all the things that he stays away from and all the things that he doesn't do or his capacity to understand all the things he could do and go do them versus everybody else feeling like they can't do them. Sounds a lot like church. Gathering of people seeking to justify themselves before one another and before God based on how many times they attend all the different things they go and do, how long their quiet time is, how much of the Bible they read, what people they go and serve in the city, what things they don't do, how many things they do do, over and against the rest of the people that are there who try to understand this measure of grace and now justify themselves by all the things they feel like they're free to do, while at the same time casting doubt and a shadow over all those who struggle to not do those very things. Paul is saying it's rubbish, all of it. When you understand, not just with your head, but taste with your heart, the grace of God that comes through a faith and the knowledge of Christ Jesus, your Lord, it changes everything. And from that point forward, those things no longer define who you are. They no longer define for you, and you no longer seek for them to provide for you the assurance that your heart is so desperate for before God. You begin to taste the utter emptiness of those things for earning any level of righteousness or comfort or assurance before God because you recognize that by grace and faith in who God is and what he has done for you in Christ, that alone provides for you all of the confidence and assurance that you need of God's love towards you. Grace changes everything. Not only is Paul's mind and his heart and his soul transformed, his very understanding of who he is, his very identity has been reshaped. His passion, his motivation, his foundation for understanding why he does what he does and the zeal for which he does it has been changed. Grace changes everything. And chiefly, at first, it changes you. And when you know the grace of God that comes through a faith in Christ Jesus, and not just with your head, but you begin to know it increasingly, tangibly, in your heart, what begins to happen is this utter, miraculous, supernatural process of destruction. In the shadow of the grace of God that comes through Jesus, Self-righteousness, arrogance, they just get destroyed. How, Paul is saying, can you stand before others and before God 
and in any way try to boast about who you are and what you do. In the shadow of what God has done for you through His Son, before the cross of Christ, how can you begin to boast about just how good you are and how much favor that has earned you before God? How can you not even boast, not to other people, because I don't think a lot of us go around and, and stand before other people and talk about this with our mouths and, and boast like we talk about, about who we are and how good we are before other people. I think we do it in our own heart. I mean, you do it in your own brain. You've got your own inner evangelist telling you just how great you really are. When you struggle with a particular temptation or sin, you've got this other inner evangelist inside your soul that tells you just how good you really are. Boasts of all the good things you do. Well, you know you've been to church every week this fall. I mean, do you notice how many people missed it every week? I mean, empty chairs here and empty chairs there. You know, I haven't seen them in about four weeks. I've been there every week. I'm the only one that's been consistent to community group. I feel like I'm the only one that tends to say anything honest. I mean, we're never going to actually have honest conversation about who we are and what God's doing unless I bring it up. You know, I always do my, my time of, of serving and teaching the kids. Nobody else does. I'm always the one back there. I seem like I'm always there every other week trying to get back there and serve, and I miss it. Yeah. You may not say that to me, but you sure enough say it to yourself. Arrogance. Self-righteousness. And the shadow of the grace of God begins to melt. Grace begins to change everything. Grace eliminates this competition that brews in our heart, this pursuit of affection and recognition from God and from other people for who we think we are. You know what that feels like? I mean, do you know what it feels like to want God to recognize you for what you've done? I mean, do you know what it feels like to have this internal sense of competition with other people for some measure of righteousness and standing? I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one that's ever struggled with that? I mean, do you know what it feels like to try to measure yourself against someone else and have this inner urge to actually go beyond that person for some sense of, I don't know, victory? Hoping somebody would see what you've done and acknowledge you for it? Hoping that maybe they would recognize you as a little more mature? whatever it may be, this sinful desire to pursue this recognition and affection from God and other people through who we are and what we do begins to melt, melt away from our hearts in the shadow of grace. Grace changes everything. The assurance that we're so desperate to find in what we do before God that he would love us, oh man, it just begins to explode as we begin to see the depth and the strength and the measure of his love towards us as it's displayed in the sacrifice of his own son, we don't need to chase it any other way anymore. You don't need to chase it any other way anymore. Grace changes everything. Apostle Paul went on to tell that church, I, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Grace has changed everything about how the Apostle Paul understood who he is, not only in this life, but in relation to God and why he does 
what he does. So much so that this man who was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, asked for the law, a zealot, asked for the church, persecuting heretics. He can look at his beloved friend Titus and write a letter to encourage him towards health in the church and say, this is from Paul. Not your friend, not your brother, not another pastor, but a servant of God. A servant of God. Grace has changed everything. So before we go, I'll ask you this. Where, where is your confidence and where is your assurance before God coming from? Are you confident because you seem to have more passion than other people? Are you drawing confidence and assurance because you attend church more than other people? Famous Richmond assumption. Are you confident and assured before God because your mom prayed for you a lot? That's a real popular one in Richmond. Mom was a good, faithful church attender. She prayed for us a lot. I think we'll be okay. Where is your confidence and assurance coming from? Grace. Grace changes everything. Chiefly, it changes you. But it doesn't stop there. Grace begins to change your relationships. I mean, look at verse 4. Paul first introduces himself as a completely different changed man that's come from the grace of God. Then he says this to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now look at how grace is driving Paul and changing how Paul relates to Titus. Remember, what kind of background did Titus have? He was a Gentile. He came from Gentile parents. Paul, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, a persecutor of heretics. Driven by the grace of God, Paul absolutely looks past his own Jewishness and Titus' own Gentile background and says that together they are of the same faith and the same family. That because of the good news of Jesus Christ and his life, death, and resurrection, Paul and Titus are united by the grace of God. Grace and peace is now what defines their relationship that comes from Christ Jesus, their Savior. Grace, Paul is saying, and he will say throughout this letter, and we will come back to all three of these things over and over and over again. Grace that comes from God is the only true legitimate foundation for human reconciliation and human unity. That's it. I don't know whatever kind of theory, what other kind of structure, whatever kind of program you got to bring reconciliation and unity between people. Nothing will do what the grace of God can do. Apart from Jesus, apart from Jesus, all of us are in unbelievably desperate need for rescue. That alone might be one of the single most humbling things that we have got to deal with if we're going to see grace begin to change the way that we relate to other people. I mean, just think about your relationships with your friends. If you're married, think about your relationship with your spouse. Uh, think about your relationship with your, with your parents or your in-laws or, or whoever it may be that, that strikes a measure of tension. What relief would it bring to your heart? I mean, what relief would it bring to your soul if by grace you were driven to understand and actually believe that before the cross of Christ, there's no difference between you and whoever that person is. I mean, really, 
that apart from the cross of Christ and the grace that comes from God, both of you are in unbelievably desperate need for rescue and redemption. I mean, just this past week, I was driving down Monument Avenue, and Aaron and I had been talking on the phone, and I had gotten frustrated with something. I don't even remember exactly what it was. And I hung up the phone, and I heard my own little inner lawyer uh, going forward into all the things that I was frustrated by. Mind you, I'm preparing to preach this message. And the grace of God and the kindness of God, I'm frustrated in my brain, haven't said a word out of my mouth, and driving down Monument, I, I, I cross over into Boulevard, and I turn, and out of my mouth I go, who in the world do you think you are? And I was talking to myself. The grace of God had begun to cast a shadow over my frustration. And all of a sudden, all the things that had frustrated me and all the ways that I was justifying myself in the midst of this discussion, all the ways that I was seeking to make sure that I was able to solidify my point and my position so that my end might be attained, literally just began to melt away as I realized, who in the world do you think you are? Apart from the grace of God, you're both wretched. You're both wretched. And it's nothing but the grace of God that's come through his son that has any hope and seen any kind of reconciliation worked out in this one little slice of life. Calm down, champ. Who do you think you are? When the grace of God begins to drive, not only the way we understand ourselves, it begins to drive the relationships that we have with other people, and we begin to deal with the very humbling reality that apart from Christ, all of us are in need of rescue. It will bring unbelievable perspective and relief to the relationships that we have in this world. It will cast an absolutely new perspective in how we approach the relationships that we have the motivations that we have for them, the aims and the ends to which we pursue in them, the ways in which we live and love and serve in them. There's going to be a whole section of this letter where he's going to unpack this. Grace changes not only you, it changes your relationships. And in this one little snapshot of the relationship between Paul and the relationship between him and Titus, you see an unbelievably clear and powerful picture of just how deep and just how strong and just how broad the grace of God is. The grace of God that could take a man like Paul and do such a work in his heart that he could look at a man like Titus and he could say, not just my coworker, not just, hey, good pastor, not just guy I left in Crete to do the work that I'm not going to stick around to do, but my true son. My true son, because of a common faith in one Lord and the grace that has changed both of us. Just in that, you get an unbelievably powerful picture of the depth and the strength and the hope that comes from the grace of God. Grace changes everything. Lastly, doesn't just change you. It doesn't just change the relationships that you have. 
what we'll see poured out over and over in this letter is a third thing. Grace changes the way that you live your life. Grace changes your lifestyle. Look at what Paul says in verse 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Notice something. I wrote this down this morning while we were sitting here. Notice that Paul talks of the faith that characterizes God's people, not what they have to do to be counted among the elect. Grace changes everything. Their status before God, their assurance before God, their comfort before God, their love before God, their righteousness before God does not come from the work of their hands and the work of their life, but from the grace of God. Grace has changed everything. And then he said something else really interesting right there. He said that their knowledge of this truth, this truth of the gospel, this good news of God's grace that comes through his son Jesus, this truth is to lead to godliness. A deep and living hope, a tasting of the good news of the grace of God that changes everything about who you are and how you live is to produce a different life, a godly life. It's not the other way around. I mean, so many times I think practically, no matter what I say or what other people say or what we do in our hearts and our minds, we think that good things will produce a sense of grace. If I do all the right things, then I'll have a sense of God's grace and God's love and God's mercy towards me when it's the other way around, a a deep and abiding hope and trust and understanding, a living faith in the grace of God produces in us and out from us a different kind of life. Grace changes everything about us, and it should change the way that we live. struggle with this when it comes to our individual life and life together as a church is that it flies in the face of everything that we've probably ever been taught or anything that we've ever actually taught about discipleship or Christian growth in the last 50 to 100 years. I mean, honestly, so much of what we pass off in the church as intentional relationships with other other people to do them spiritual good, to, to encourage them in their faith, to help them grow in maturity in faith, whether you call that coaching, whether you call it discipleship, whether you call it mentoring, no matter what word you smack on it, It's passed off over and over and over again through conversations that go like this. You know what? Just just try harder. Buckle down. Let's get the right things in place and the right order in place and, and encourage each other in it. You know? Just just straighten out this one thing and just do this other thing. And you can do it and we can do it and over and over and over and over and over again. We help one another and encourage one another to strengthen our resolve, to dig in, and to hold fast. And here's my struggle. It's hot in here. It sounds noble, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, don't you just want somebody in your life more often than you actually have encouraging you, telling you to hold fast? Hold fast. Stand strong. Whatever other things there are. Sounds noble. It's actually unbelievably damaging. It's unbelievably damaging to the production of healthy Christians and healthy churches. You know why? What's the foundation of that encouragement? 
I mean, what's the hope of that encouragement? What's the focus? What's the foundation? You. Your resolve. Your discipline. Your commitment. Your capacity to receive encouragement. Your capacity to do this, that, or the other. Your resolve is the foundation. Your focus is, not any, no, is, is no longer, and I'm not sure it ever was, on your ongoing need for the grace of God to produce a new sense of understanding of who you are before Him and an appreciation for that that drives a new way of living. Your focus is not on the grace of God that produces godliness. A knowledge of the truth and a faith and a hope that produces godliness. Your foundation and your focus is on your capacity to have resolve. You've switched the whole point. Grace, a living understanding of grace, produces godliness. And here's here's how it happens. And Paul is going to talk about this a lot in the book of Titus, so I won't belabor it. Here's how it happens. As you battle temptation in your heart, as you fight temptation and sin in your own soul, in your own desires, in your own motivations, if you are not increasingly learning to enjoy grace, increasingly learning to delight in grace, increasingly learning to trust and find assurance and comfort and confidence in the grace of God and being driven by the grace of God, here's what happens. The awareness of your sin, that temptation that you're struggling with, that battle that you know you need to fight, it will overwhelm you. You'll eventually be overwhelmed by your own struggle with sin. And in the not quite the worst case scenario, what that leads to is utter despair. Overwhelmed by your own struggle with sin, trusting your own resolve, your own capacity to commit to the plan, your own encouragement to stand fast and move forward, overwhelmed by your own struggle with sin and temptation, you ultimately, apart from the grace of God, will end up in despair, end up in frustration. But what happens, what happens when you increasingly learn to find joy and delight and taste the goodness of God's grace is that begins to be the thing that begins to increasingly drive your soul, drive your life, When you face struggle and temptation, you face it in the shadow of the grace of God. And as you see your sin, as you see your weakness, as you see your temptation, and its size begins to grow and its power begins to loom, it drives you not to your capacity to stand strong, fight hard, have resolve. It drives you to the grace of God that cost him his own son. It drives you to focus not on how hard you can commit to overcoming the sin, but how large and strong the grace of God is in his commitment to defeat sin on your behalf. And when grace begins to increasingly shape the way you see your life, the way you see yourself, and you begin to draw comfort and hope and assurance from the grace of God it gives you the capacity to see your sin for what it really is. We talk about this all the time. It's a beautiful cycle. The bigger the grace of God gets, the greater the grace of God gets in your own heart and your own soul, the deeper the capacity you have for seeing just how wretched you really are. 
the capacity to boast before that grace is eliminated. You see just how deeply in need of that grace you really are. And seeing that need doesn't drive you to despair anymore. It doesn't drive you to fight harder anymore. It drives you back to the source of grace that has overcome that thing on your behalf. It's a beautiful cycle that God's given us. Grace begins to change everything. And it changes chiefly our heart, our soul, our sense of who we are. It changes the way that we relate and live with other people. And then it ultimately begins to change the life that we actually live. Grace enables us to acknowledge our weakness and depend upon God's mercy and not our resolve. I love this. Brian Chapel, one of my favorite pastors, professor, said this. When you know grace, the grace of God that began in eternity past extends into eternity ahead, is proclaimed now at the command of God, required the body and blood of Jesus Christ, allows repentance without any fear of rejection. When you know this grace, you'll desire to honor the one who loves you so majestically as to offer it to you. Grace produces godliness. When that response to the grace of God a desire to honor him with all that you are because of who he is and what he has done for you isn't present, I think you can have grounds for wondering if you've ever really tasted it in the first place. Enjoying grace leads to godliness. Listen to me as we wrap this up. Redemption Hill, I want to I want to tell you this, and I want to tell you this honestly and sincerely from my heart. The key to living a healthy life before God, the key to living as a healthy church, a fruitful church, a church that brings glory to the one who has called us to himself, the one who has established this thing, the one who is empowering this thing, the one to whose glory we, we seek in all that we do, the key to living as a healthy person and as a healthy church is being able to enjoy grace. My prayer for not only myself, but for you and for all of us is that we would be a people that would increasingly be able to enjoy the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. When we can be a people that increasingly enjoy grace, we will be a people that are increasingly marked by health. And all the things that come from healthy lives and all the things that come from healthy churches will begin to bear fruit out of here. We can distract ourselves and come around the back. We can try to produce healthy things in your life without ever having to deal with you enjoying the grace of God. And we can try to program things to make this place look healthy without ever having to deal with the one thing that produces health in the life of this church. But if you want health, if you want real change, if you want real change in you, if you want real change in your relationships, if you want real change in the way that you live your life, it comes by learning to enjoy grace. Enjoy grace. Because grace changes everything. It changes everything. And as you sit there and I say that and you think about that, you might say to yourself, you don't know just how wretched I am. You don't know exactly what I've done. Nobody knows exactly what I've done. 
though that may be true, what you need to know is just how great God's grace is. You may think your sin is too large, but my prayer for you is that you see just how great and how large God's grace is. Others of you can see it in your face. You're sitting there and you're saying, but I can't, I can't measure up all the things I'm supposed to do and all the things I'm supposed to be and all the ways I'm supposed to live. I, I, I can't measure up. Well, my prayer for you as we go through this is that you learn to enjoy grace and begin to understand in the depths of your heart that God does not love you or save you on the basis of your capacity to, to behave and your capacity to obey. God saves you by his grace and his mercy alone, not by your capacity to measure up to whatever standard you think you've got to meet. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, and I'll close with this, in response to God's grace, in response to the the message of the gospel, in response to the depth and the width and the height of the love of God that he had tasted, that he had tasted, he said this, What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Grace changes everything. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for not leaving us to ourselves, not standing back as we rebelled against you, disregarded you, found no joy in you, were not satisfied by you. Thank you that you did not stand back and cross your arms and do away with us, but you came to us. And while we were yet sinners, when there was nothing lovely or lovable about us, while we were yet wretched and apart from you, You sent your son to live in our place, to die for our sin, and you raised him to new life where he sits and reigns and rules over all things that we might through faith in him taste of the goodness of your grace and be changed and conformed into his image. Lord, help us to be a people who are passionate about pursuing grace, who are people who know what it is to enjoy grace. Help us to be a people that proclaim with our mouths and with our lives the reality that grace changes everything. We ask this, Lord, that you would be magnified, you would be glorified, that your goodness and your grace would be on display in our lives and in this church. Amen.